This is Rob Goldstone, editor of Current Directions in Psychological Science. Our guest today is Janice Kikolt Glazer, distinguished university professor and Brumbau Chair in Brain Research and Teaching, and Director of the Institute for Behavioral Medicine Research at The Ohio State University. And she is the lead author on the article, Stress Reactivity, What Pushes Us Higher, Faster, and Longer, and Why It Matters. Thanks for being here, Janice. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So to start off, in broad strokes, how does a human body respond to stress? And what is the normal utility of that response? We think of often stress responses as in some ways artificially bimodal. Uh, There's the fight or flight response. You are stressed, uh, you need to mobilize energy. So your sympathetic nervous system will quickly Produce, help you produce stress hormones. Uh, adrenaline and cortisol, uh, heart rate goes up, blood pressure goes up. You're mobilized for energy. You need to do something. You need to fight or flight um, or flee. Um, and, you know, in contrast, there's the rest and digest uh, part where um, you don't want to be mobilized all the time. You want the parasympathetic nervous system to. Uh, keep you on a lower level so that you're not uh, burning all those resources all the time. And the problem is that those don't tend to go so well. Uh, we tend to uh, really quickly and easily often go into fight or flight um, when we, it might not be our ideal strategy. Great. So as you point out in your article, Different people respond very differently to stress. And some of those differences are at a measurable physiological level. So can you describe what some of these differences between people are? Sure. There are, there are several different dimensions that have really been prominent in the literature for explaining what some of the risk factors for greater reactivity might be, though there are many, but these are some of the most prominent. Um, We know, for example, that when people have a history of depression, current depression or a history of depression, um, they may have both greater emotional and physiological reactivity. Um, And that that can take a lot of different forms and have a lot of different consequences. For example, in some of the marital studies that we've done in my lab, when we had couples discuss a disagreement, um, sometimes some couples would get pretty nasty with each other, high levels of hostility. And when there was also a history of past depression, uh, what we would see are, we were giving them high fat meals as well, because we really wanted to see what stress would do to your metabolism. So when we gave them these high fat meals and they were more hostile and had had a history of depression, we could watch triglycerides, fat in the blood, which we normally want to go down quickly and stay down, go up and stay up, which is a, a recipe for atherosclerosis, for clogging your arteries. We could see uh, insulin going up uh, and staying up after the meal uh, compared to those who were not so hostile um, and 
the, the reason you don't want insulin to stay up is it's a fat storage mechanism. You really don't want to store fat. You want to burn it. Um, and the third lovely piece that we would see was hot, lower resting energy expenditure. Well, what does that mean? It means you're burning fewer calories so that you've had a high fat meal, you're storing more fat, and people were burning with that combination an average of 104 fewer calories over six hours. That's really trivial in, the, you know, in a single uh, day, but over the course of a year, we're talking about seven to 11 pounds. So it's a, a really good way to uh, put on the pounds. Um, but, it not need, but the differences with depression need not be clinical or syndromal. For example, the Trier social stress test is something that's used a lot in psychology. Um, you bring people into a laboratory, uh, research participants, you tell them you're going to ask them to make a speech to a panel of experts, uh, often about something they mm, haven't done before, like a job that they've never had. Why would they be a good person for that job? <laughs> um, and then you give them five minutes to prepare you give them five minutes to talk and they're talking in front of a panel of two or three white coated people who are instructed to sit and be stony faced the entire time. And if the person stops talking, they say, please say more. And then after that, they're asked to do mental arithmetic, count backwards by 13s from 2,225. And every time you make an error, they say, error, the correct response is, <laughs> and it is just a really lovely way to generate a stress response. And people who have a history of depression will be higher on that. But simply having higher levels of depressive symptoms will elevate responses as well. <laughs> there are also other things that will do it. Uh, worry and rumination, often termed together perseveration, raise your baseline levels of physiological arousal. And they can facilitate ongoing reactivity even without an obvious threat. Um, a lot of literature that rumination can produce larger and longer lasting cortisol responses, a stress hormone, heightened blood pressure, heart rate, and heart rate and lower heart rate variability, um, a marker of the sympathetic nervous system. I mean, the parasympathetic nervous system. And you care about that because it means if you're just sitting there thinking about something and ruminating, you may be generating your own stress response. Which none of us really want to do just by thinking, but we do it. Um, and then there's social evaluation. In the true social stress test, you know others are evaluating your performance. You have these white-coated people who are sitting there uh, looking at you. And whether or not they give you any negative feedback, uh, they're certainly promoting stress reactivity. Um, and you can have prolonged recovery if you th keep thinking about that stressor afterwards. And then one final thing in that category really comes out in terms of individual differences in stress, and that's early life adversity. Uh, when people have had um, early adversity, um, uh, it can be um, in a variety of ways, um, uh, early in life, um, uh, abuse, uh, neglect, um, they can be programmed for reactivity later in life so that they, one of the more consistent findings is greater uh, physiological reactivity to stressors. So they're carrying the unfortunate early experiences with them throughout their life. Mm -hmm. Exactly, thanks.
One of the things I particularly appreciated about your article is that you considered not only individual level variables that influence stress response, but you also consider factors beyond the individual, such as dyadic relations like intimate spousal relations. Can you describe how a person's relations to others can modulate stress responses? Absolutely. Um, couples definitely shape each other's stress reactions for good or for <laughs> ill. Um, and part of what happens over time is partners' responses uh, to experiences become more similar um, and stress can be contagious. If your partner is stressed, you're more likely to experience stress yourself. Uh, stress hormones like cortisol and adrenaline rise in response to both your own and your own and your partner's hostile behavior during a partner discussion. Um, and those stress hormones can synchronize, which is you know basically adding insult to injury. Um, so couples are regulating each other's emotional responses to stress. And that can be beneficial when people are sharing positive emotions. Um, but it can be very costly when they're sharing negative emotions. You really, um, so that there can be upward and downward cycles uh, or, or mm -hmm. over time. Uh, with positivity going up and up, being more positive, sharing that together. Negativity, down, down, down. Um, and better relationship quality with greater support and validation helps to lessen stress responses. You know, if you come home and you say to your partner, I really had a rotten day, and they say, oh, what's for dinner? Uh, <laughs> uh, uh -huh. that's, that's not likely to be one of the more positive responses. And unhappy couples tend to use hostile behaviors like sarcasm, disgust, and eye rolling during stressful interactions. Mm. We ask people to discuss a disagreement and we can see these things happening. And they're heightening both their own stress responses and they're priming later reactivity. There's mm -hmm. a circular pattern, as I said, with couples becoming more hostile and more sensitive and then more susceptible to stress. Because if your primary relationship isn't going well, um, and that should be your primary source of support, well, it really sets you up to be more stressed. Mm -hmm. um, exactly. And the, uh, some of the most intriguing data we had was some years ago from a study of newlywed couples. Um, and we could show we were actually drawing blood as they were discussing their disagreement. Um, and we could see really nice, large changes in stress hormones. Nice for us, not for them, but say la vie, um, as they were discussing if they were more hostile or negative. And 24 hours later, those who had the greater uh, negative changes in stress hormones and were more hostile had bigger and negative immune changes. But what really got my attention was the fact that it wasn't just while the couple was talking. We had drawn blood hourly. We had a catheter in their arm so we could draw blood hourly through the day and through the night. Uh, you know, the nurse would creep into the uh, hospital room where the couple was staying. They had a catheter in their arm. She would stick a needle into the catheter to get uh, blood so we could actually follow people over time. And what we were seeing was that couples who 10 years later, uh, when we followed them up, had divorced or were unhappily married, uh, 
that when they were newlyweds, even through the day and night, even while they were sleeping, had higher levels of adrenaline and noradrenaline. So that these stress responses were persistent. Uh, and that's one of the, the clues to me about why relationships are so important. That these, these, these changes are following people even while they're sleeping. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So think twice before you say that potentially provocative thing to your spouse could have <laughs> lingering effects. Exactly. When I was reading your article, I was impressed by the evidence you give for stress's adverse impacts on health. But then I found myself thinking about exercise. So many of us are engaging in effortful and frankly, aversive exercise <laughs> regimes because we think it's going to make us healthier. So if we imagine that exercise puts the body under stress, why is exercise healthy, but say ruminating about money problems is bad for health or a bit more fancifully, perhaps, could I create a new workout routine, which instead of involving me running five miles just involves me purposefully ruminating about my money problems for 40 minutes? Oh, I wish. I wish, <laughs> you know, the problem we have there is that, you know, the fight or flight response. When you're exercising, you're mobilizing those stress hormones, no doubt. Uh, you're raising your blood pressure, you're raising your heart rate, you're doing all the things we would consider uh, part of the stress response. But um, you're burning energy too. You're, it's the fight or flight. You're quickly using that energy uh, for exercise. Um, so that it's, it's in the service of what you're doing physically. When you're sitting there ruminating, um, none of that takes place. And with exercise, we know too, there's actually some evidence that exercise may lower stress responsiveness over time. Um, there's no good evidence, oh, I wish, that ruminating will lower your stress response quite the Exactly. Okay. So I think you just answered the final question I want to ask, at least in part, but given these adverse effects of stress on our bodies, are there positive interventions, including exercise, which you just mentioned, that um, people experiencing high levels of stress can make in their own lives that have a somewhat solid basis of empirical support? Absolutely. Um, meditation is one of the ones that we're mm. finding increasingly has some good support. The regular meditation practices um, appear to be able to dampen stress responses. Um, and that's really important and really helpful. Um, they also tend to potentially uh, enhance moods over time. The, there's good evidence, I think, our growing evidence on yoga, we have some evidence from our lab um, where more experienced yoga practitioners in terms of responding to stressors uh, had lower stress responses compared to their novice counterparts. Um, one of the easy things is sleep. Uh, we're a nation that, the, well, North America is a, is a, a continent that's often underslept. Uh, too little sleep. Mm -hmm. And a lack of sleep uh, really primes reactivity. 
um, you are more likely to be grouchy, of course, which isn't going to help your interpersonal relationships, uh, but you may also be more physiologically reactive. Um, we think there's evidence for a healthy diet that's more speculative. And while cognitive behavioral therapy uh, aligning stress appraisals with an actual threat sounds really good, the evidence is actually is, is kind of mixed so far. And I really wish it were stronger. It makes intuitive sense, but we don't have the empirical support we'd like to see. Right, right. Great. Um, that's all the time we have for our conversation with Janice Kikolt Glazer. Thanks very much, Janice, for the great conversation. Thank you. I've enjoyed it, and thank you for having me.